By the way, I wanted to tell, uh, I forgot, there's a joke I want to tell you. I thought you'd appreciate it because of your love of history. Mm-hmm. So it's World War II, and the Italian army and the um, German army, they're in the, the forest, and the Allies are on their way, and they're surrounded. They have no chance. They're definitely going to be defeated and, and killed, right? So the German uh, general says to his, what, second-in-command? Who's mm-hmm. okay. The German general says to his second-in-command, bring me mine red jacket. And the Italian guy, general says to the German guy, why, why do you say that? He goes, because I don't want my men to see me bleed. And the Italian goes, ah, okay. Italian general says to his second in command, bring me my brown pants. <laughs> Which I told that joke when I was like a little kid in front of a group of adults. And I told it the other way. Because I didn't get the, the political, historical yeah. ramifications, yeah, no, right? The so I told it so that the Italian guy had said... It's always got to be the yeah, Italian Yeah, the Italians are just shitting themselves, right? Yeah. yeah. It's so funny. And in Rome, they've got that gigantic war memorial uh, next to the Colosseum. And it's just like, dude, come on. How long has it been? <laughs> like, you know, it's been about 2,000 years. Hello, and welcome to Kitty Helper Show. I'm your host, Kitty Helper, joined by... Uh, what's going on, everybody? It's me, Gabe Pacheco. All right. How you doing, Mr. President? Feeling great. This week, we talk to Matt Chrisman, who you may have heard of. He's from the Chapo Trap House podcast. Talks about uh, fascism in Italy fascism, and Germany. Yeah, Germany, yeah. And why the horseshoe theory is BS and... You know what's going to happen in 2020. He's a real history nerd. He's a he's a Renaissance man, and he has a, a, a girthy knowledge. Girthy knowledge of history, Broad especially knowledge. yeah, yeah. He really does. We have a great bonus for you on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/TheKatieHelperShow, and you're definitely going to want to do that because this week Matt Chrisman talks to us a little bit about his use and what he was into. It's a Civil War history. You can hear the uh, Katie Helper Show on iTunes, where you got to rate and review us. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find me at KT Helps on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at Gabe underscore Pacheco. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be talking to Matt Christman, who is um, a member of the Chapo Trap House Collective, the podcast, and also the book. Yes, that's right. And you've written for Jacobin also. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're kind of like, I think of you as a kind of a zinian. <laughs> a, uh, a very accessible historian. Yeah, um, I mean that's that's what I'm probably most knowledgeable about. So yeah. it's it's what I try to emphasize. Yeah. Well, welcome. And um, we want to talk about this bonus episode you did about fascism that I thought was so good. And you could you should like do a series like a his, the history according to Matt Chrisman or something. But it went through kind of the history of fascism and it pushed back on the horseshoe theory. What I want to know what like inspired you to do that bonus episode? Uh, well, the main thing that inspired me was just the fact that because fascism is is in people's minds so much and people are talking about it and and the idea of st- political street violence is reasserting itself as you know a sporadic but real part of American life that that it behooves me it behooved me to try to offer some sort of clarity because uh, it does seem, you know, be, like any concept in America, because we don't really have a sense of history or, or knowledge base, that things just sort of get, these terms just sort of get thrown around without any real reference to where they came from or what they mean in, in any kind of context, alone a historical one. So I just wanted to try to politically ground the idea and talk about the the, the genesis of fascism in interwar Europe. I, I feel like the episode I did was a good i thought it did a good job uh, enough of talking about it from the perspective of sort of how it's an instrument of capital mm-hmm. uh but i feel like i kind of missed out on explaining the social base which i did later i did a, a a periscope that i hope to put on youtube soon that went further into sort of who made up the actual social base as opposed to what capital saw in fascism as sort of an instrument of their power Oh, maybe you can do a little bit of that now if you want. Sure. Uh, I was just I talked in the in the in the episode, uh, the, the Chapo episode about fascism sort of being capitalism's tool to sort of co-opt the 
the politics of the masses that had emerged due to socialism uh, in the late 19th century and create sort of a right-wing popular movement right. that could then channel all those popular anxieties and angers, especially about, political, about economic uh, stress, towards the right and away, away from the left. Uh, but what I talk about in the, in the Periscope thing is about specifically who that was made up of, uh, how the first sort of street fighters of mm -hmm. fascism, both in Italy and in Germany, were World War I veterans who had essentially been sort of traumatized right. out of their ability to interact with the world mm -hmm. and civ civilian life in any kind of healthy way anymore, and responded to that by seeking sort of violence as sort of a way of life. And and those were the guys who made up, you know, the black shirts and the brown shirts, and and were they were even in countries that didn't go fascist. Mm. They made up the the guys who Churchill sent to Ireland in the black and tans uh, wow. to to suppress the IRA, uh, and then talked about how the the electoral and political base of fascism was the urban middle classes, the sort of the the petit bourgeois, the the small shopkeepers and professionals whose lives were. They didn't have a sense of class consciousness. They didn't work in sort of, you know, the factory milieu that would have given them that sense of, of capital as an enemy, uh, and, but were resentful of finance and were also resentful sort of of the working class culture that they were sort of alienated from and for whom sort of refocusing anti-capitalism towards specifically Jew, Judaism and, and Jewish control of finance as opposed to the cl the capital class was was an easier sell than it was to the working classes, and of course the small farmers uh, in in the countryside. Uh, so that was sort of how I that was what I felt like I missed in the first one, and I wanted to clarify in the follow up. Yeah, well, you got it. We got it now. Yeah, and send it out to the masses. Um, you you started out your episode with um talking about something I had never heard of. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it, but you talk about the 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 genocide and concentration camps that happened um, that under German control of Namibia. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it uh, relates to what fascism is today? Because uh, I think most people don't know about that. I yeah. Yeah. Well, Germany was, a, was one of the later, uh, the last countries of Europe to get a part of the African colonial sort of land grab of the late 19th century. And, uh, one of those, they mostly were able to just sort of nibble along at the edges of some places where the British and the French hadn't gotten to yet. And the one place they were able to grab is, was called Southwest German Southwest Africa, which is current day Namibia, which they claimed in the late 1800s. Uh, and then their rule was textbook colonial enterprise of seizing the um, most valuable land and the most valuable sort of social capital, which there was uh, was cattle and livestock because the the the, the Herero tribesmen there were, were largely uh, uh, herdsmen, uh, and that led to an inevitable conflict with the local tribes. There was a rebellion, and the Germans responded with a campaign of extermination, basically, where they drove them into inhospitable deserts and uh, poisoned any wells so that they wouldn't be able to have access to water. And then when the people who didn't starve sort of surrendered and came back to the, the, the settled areas, uh, in a they actually also uh, rounded them up into camps, and, and some of the camps actually did the sort of experimentation that would later be done at places like Auschwitz. And that's just part of a general point that uh, fascism, in its mechanism, in, what it, in terms of what it does at its extreme when it takes power, is it just it takes the mechanisms that that country used to gain its colonial power and then just turns them on its own citizens in an effort to sort of suppress the left broadly, uh, and that and 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 that is uh, that's basically the mo of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, talking about what it means today, it it does mean that uh, you know any kind of resurgence, any dangerous resurgence of fascism in the United States is going to have sort of the imperture of our military, specifically the army that's been carrying out you know now at this point almost 20 years of sort of brush fire colonial wars in the middle east and in afghanistan Ooh, okay i was just thinking about uh the i was meditating on the idea of what these colonial um forces uh, being internalized as opposed to like spread out what that looks like here and i just thought about honestly i was thinking about charter schools <laughs> and i was like okay like you know because a charter school that is telling that uh, takes the kids away from their parents 
or any ideology where you're like, well, we need to take the kids out of their own communities to help them excel. And uh, working at schools in the Bronx where I see kids being like, they they practice tracking where they have to make eye contact with uh, the teacher and uh, they're like castigated if they don't or they have to walk along straight lines. Mm. Uh, they have mm. to stay there six days out of the week or whatever. And that just makes me think about like our own... Uh, like the schools that we put Native Americans in, you know, right. not we, but what the United States would right. do that sort not, of yeah, the residential personal. schools. Yeah, yeah, you're you're trying to scrub, uh, you're trying to alienate kids from their parents and from their right. communities as the only option to succeed. Right. So well, I don't know. That just that was the thought I had. Charter on, schools. Yeah. Today's fascism. What I mean, what are the the applications that? That this has, I mean, I know there are a lot, but what is the danger in throwing around the term fascism? Because uh, you talk about, you say, like, to if we want to talk about fascism in a meaningful way or take it seriously, we have to kind of be precise in its use. And there are a lot of people who probably have politics that we agree with who throw the word around or talk about neo-fascism. I think the danger is just because. Uh, it it comes because fascism sort of arises in a specific context, and I feel like if you use it sort of in ex- exactly, it can make you misdiagnose the moment you're in. Right. Because it will make you think, okay, the fascism is here. We are. These conditions are X, mm-hmm. and I feel like that that is the real danger because, the, and this is another thing I feel like I missed in the in my chap episode, and that I also tried to talk about in the Periscope was that the uh the real context of fascism is when it's not just a crisis. It's not just a, a moment of economic or social crisis uh, hitting a, a, a sort of a, a, a advanced Western state. It is that happening in also uh, an, a moment of a powerful mobilized left uh, because their danger is that this left will usurp, will be able right. just through sheer power, numbers to take power. And fascism is a, is a mechanism f- to prevent that, essentially, by, by mobilizing a different section of the public uh, along uh, sort of reactionary and, and nationalist lines, but able to do battle, like, in, in the streets to the degree that that's a real thing, to, to sort of assert power in physical space and also uh, at the ballot box. And that is why, like, the current moment, I feel like, we're we're seeing sort of uh, the beginnings of stirring on both ends, essentially mm-hmm. the the re the reemergence of politics, basically after it took a nap for about thirty years uh, after after the after the seventies, uh, and but we are still in a very early stage uh, of that moment, and that's why I think you know figuring out exactly what these mechanisms are uh, is important. Like for example, if I if if we do get some sort of crisis, you know, a real economic crisis in this country that that uh, that hollows out sort of the already rotting center, uh, in in the in the moment right now where the left is really not there in any kind of real mass sense, uh, it, it's it's going to look less like like fascism, I would say, than something like uh, than than something like Egypt or or Pakistan, a thing where it's essentially just a military direct military rule. Uh, right. direct military uh, or direction of the economy uh, and, and without need for mass politics, basically abolishing politics uh, because we have lived in such in sort of a post-political moment for so long here in this country. The fascism is best understood as a, a mass political movement and we don't have those at all in right. this country. So the, the left, left would have right. to be stronger exactly. for us to even consider yeah. fascism. As, a, as, as like existing. a real mass movement. Because right. we don't have mass politics in this country, yeah, and that and that and fascism is is a is above all a mass political project, and in the in a country like ours right now, there are no mass political projects. Right. So could we have we ever had fascism in the United States? Uh, uh, have we been more fascist adjacent? Uh, well, I mean that's the old. Uh, I mean that's all runs back to the that goes back to the uh, the whole question of definition. Right. There are other definitions of fascism right. that basically say that I mean that when you're talking about any of the, sort of the post uh, Great Depression states, you're you're talking about different different grades of fascism, and that the United States military Keynesianism that went came in after World War II 
with its massive wars abroad during you know uh, its fight with the Soviets and and domestic suppression, COINTELPRO and, and all that, uh, that that and and the suppression of the the mass movements of the '60s that that counted. Uh, but as I said, I just feel like it misses the mass political element to really to really right. be a meaningful uh, a meaningful Diagnosis example of it. Or... Yeah. Uh, so I'd say that we have had uh, the uh, and others, including Robert Faxon, have pointed out that sort of the first proto-fascist movement in America was the post-Civil War Ku Klux Klan. Mm. And right. that if you want to talk about sort of a fascist political moment in, in American history, it's probably uh, the post-Reconstruction South mm-hmm. after, after the troops have been removed following the Compromise of 1877 uh, and the Redeemer Leagues spread, sprung up all over the, the, uh, the southern states to basically reverse all of the advances that have been made by freed slaves and remove them from positions of political power and economic and social influence, uh, all along a sort of a paramilitary basis uh, with the Ku Klux Klan as, as, their, as their sort of exemplary organization. So I'd say that that's probably the closest thing. I mean, it, once again, it's not fully there because the, 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 uh, because the mass political context that only really makes sense in the terms of sort of the post-Marxist, uh, specifically post-Soviet revolution, uh, you know, uh, array of forces uh, didn't exist. But the, the elements, the ingredients are there uh, are in, in a richer degree than I'd say any other time. Right. And one of the, I mean, you mentioned Paxton, right, and uh, Stanley Payne. Mm-hmm. One of the, the reasons it's hard to define fascism is because it's kind of inherently anti-intellectual and there's no fascist manifesto. I mean, it's, it's like romantic and it's, it's violent and it's, it, it, what it, it literally means like a, a, a group of sticks yes. in Italian. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like a heralding back to the Roman Empire. Yes. Um, and it makes sense because it's such a violent, thuggish thing that it makes sense that it doesn't have this very intellectually rigorous definition. I mean, yeah. It. And not only does it not really have an intellectual tradition, it doesn't really even have a ideological, a, a coherent ideology. Right. And that's on purpose. So this is another right, thing I say exactly. on the show is that it was, it was really, it was a postmodern political movement before that was even conceived of because it was a bunch of essentially cynics uh, and true believers, but true believers in sort of pathological shit like anti-Semitism right. or whatever. And PTSD suffers. Yeah, who uh, wanted power and were looking for a way to get it. And, right. and, and so they basically looked at the landscape of, of post-war Europe and they, they looked for where the, uh, where the daylight was, basically. Uh, they didn't have a place on the left, uh, but they saw that on the right, the, con- the traditional conservative parties were losing support, losing legitimacy, and had no real, uh, had no real popular base. But those people who, who those people were not really of the left. They were not the 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 the, the people who maybe did not invest the the or establishment right with with legitimacy. They weren't also they weren't necessarily sort of captured by the left. They were up for grabs. And they identified, okay, like what what do we need? Well, we need the mass pol- we need in a, in a, in an era where guys are marching down the streets with all their red flags and shouting, we need a mass face. You you can't just be names on a ballot and 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 signs. You have to be in the streets. Like that's that's the the currency of politics at that time. Yeah. Uh, and so it has to be a mass organization. Uh. Well, what what are what do people you know what do people respond to well they respond to nationalism uh that's that's shown to be to the to the chagrin of all the marxist theorizers mark nationalism showed itself to be incredibly resilient and a a potent uh organizer people love their flag oh they really do and so but nationalism sort of with the laissez-faire uh uh, economic order which had been largely uh, discredited by World War I and all of the turmoil afterwards, that wasn't really a sell either. So nationalism fused with sort of a broad critique of capitalism as it was being, you know, exercised then. And they did, honestly, they made the argument, which is still the right-wing argument now, uh, uh, of sort of hardcore libertarians who, who want to promote free markets but don't want to defend the current order of well, you're not. T- that's not capitalism. That's crony capitalism. Only in their mind, the cronies were all Jews. That's how they sort of. Ex- that's, that's how they. That's how they square that circle. And they said it, uh, capitalism is fine. In fact, capitalism 
uh, in its in a pure sense is struggle, which is the, the which is one of the few things that is a bedrock uh, fascist notion. Which is struggle is sort of what makes humans human, and it is sort of the purifying uh, fire that everyone has to go through. And and that's on a battlefield, but it's also uh, in you know uh, business. And so you know conquering the the heights of of competitive commerce is a fascist undertaking if it's done by someone of the nation and not some someone sort of you know right. using their power of the state behind closed doors. Using, using, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was honestly thinking about like the Hillary Clinton campaigns. Uh, we were going through like a list of all of the terms that potential slogans. Yeah, and they were like uh, fair chance, uh, yeah. chance yeah. to get ahead. Yeah, fair um, shot. Yeah, and meritocracy based. And all of it was sort of like, well, this foot race, this competition, like, we'll all get a chance to struggle equally. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, and it's like Russian, Russian roulette. Yeah. You'll get more slots, empty slots, I guess. To, and and know. so it was just this grab bag of nationalism, scapegoating, and this sort of critique of capitalism. And that's, of course, where you get the facile... Denise D'Souza, right. Jonah Goldberg thing of well, they have socialism in the name, and they they were right. they consider themselves socialists. Right. When and there were members of the Nazi Party who sort of Dabbled. were disillusioned socialists who who had right. seen sort of the failure of internationalism to overcome national sentiment during World War One, and figured if you can't beat them, join them, right. and this is the way to sort of get to destroy capitalism from within a nation state context, like the Strasser brothers. Uh, but what's and the this movie is, with Joaquin Phoenix? Yes. And this is uh, Paxton's point in his book, which is, which analyzes fascism as a not in its rhetoric but in its actual policies, shows that. Well, for one thing, none of those, none of that rhetoric stopped them from being supported by big business in Germany. Right. They were always bankrolled, and that is what I'm talking about when I say cynical, because that was the right. big thing holding back. They had, they. The, the left broadly had numbers on their side, but they did not have, they had complete and total opposition from the ruling class and the money interests, which obviously, uh, you know, is going to be a huge hindrance. Uh, fascism could see if we ally with big business, if we ally with conventional establishment support and essentially offer them sort of a popular face, then we can avoid attacks from the, from the establishment uh, while continuing to fight in the street and, and make the appeals, the broad populist appeals that might peel people away from socialism. And you can see that in the fact that after the beer hall pushed, uh, you know, uh, Hitler who could have been executed for, uh, for treason, uh, was given a very light sentence was out after two years, uh, because this establishment did not really view the fascists as a threat because they were suppressing the people they were really right. scared of. So they were a good threat because they were a threat to their right. the people they saw as a yeah. I mean, threat. they were not ideal because any kind of street violence and street organization is is nerve nervous making to people in positions <laughs> of power. Right. But it was certainly a better alternative than to letting the streets to the to the communists. Right. Uh, and so, like that, that's sort of the cynical brew that they concocted to gain power. And then, of course, once they were in power, not only did they obviously lock up all of the social democrats and the communists but they uh banned unions and they actually were one of the first regimes the nazis were to experiment with uh with um state private privatization of state interests like actually returning uh functions of the state or or giving functions of the state over to private contractors uh and and throughout all of you know the, the nazi yeah. and italian and italian fascist regimes the no Properties were not ever confiscated. Uh, some industries were nationalized during the war effort, of course, but that's sort of par for the course when you're talking about total mobilization. Uh, but even in those cases, it was always compensated and, and executives and stuff uh, were all, like, they maintained the matrix of profit and they all got access to the profits that the capitalist enterprises made. So how does this apply to today? The big cliched but important question of history. What are the takeaways? I mean, like, if, if the diagnosis of is so important, which I think it is, that is because, like, to, to continue the metaphor, we need the correct treatment, right? Uh, the correct antibiotics or whatever. So, like, so what is the the course of treatment? What is the, what is to be done? And what do we call it if it's not fascism? Which, like, what is, what, it, late capitalism? I don't know. What, what do we call this era? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're just, we're dealing with a prolonged, uh, we're we're dealing with a prolonged economic crisis uh, that is no shows no real signs of 
stopping and every sign of, of heading towards another collapse. Uh, and, but it's a, it's just a very odd time. It's, 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 it is genuinely sort of sui generis because you have, you had this massive collapse in 2008 and we've been in the backwash of it ever since. And politics is consuming people more and more. I mm-hmm. mean, like people are, are really thinking in political terms almost exclusively, but because of the nature of this social order that we've created through a million things, but mass media being a big part of it and server urbanization being another huge part and the destruction of labor unions and the destruction of really public space in general, it's all happening in a context where none of it is translating into a mass politics of any kind, where people vote, although still not that many. I mean, the massively, you know, these last two elections, uh, we're talking something like 45 to 55% voter turnout right and Uh, that's after massive pushes right exactly so not that many people vote and the people who do fixate on politics largely confine their their uh their activities around it towards personal expression uh, online or you know uh, mostly online and so it's this weird ersatz war that's largely being fought uh uh on the internet uh, and there are, of course, it is spilling over into public, of course, things like, you know, the, the Charlottesburg, Charlottesburg and uh, Charlottesville and. Making and, a Jewish. Oh, uh, yeah. the Jews. Yeah. And uh, Antifa and, and, you know, street fights. But there is sort of a weird cosplay sort of ersatz quality to it because you aren't talking about the sort of mass, mo- mass mobilizations that you would expect with this degree of passion. You're still right. talking about relatively small groups of people in any absolute sense. Uh, and so that's why it's hard really for me to draw a lot of real inferences just because this era feels so oddly um, isolated mm-hmm. sort of in historical terms because the the pervading social modes and, and pervading economic conditions are really unique in American history. But don't people say that, all, like, isn't that, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same? Like, I think people often think that in the moment, right, that we're in an unprecedented era, yeah. um, which doesn't mean they're wrong or, or you're wrong. But I guess, um, yeah, I don't know. Then, of course, the other question is, what is to be? Yeah, like, and that's, big, that's the hardest one, of course. And I, I, I mean, right. the, the easy the glib answer is that mass politics on the left has to become a real thing again Be- and that needs to happen probably in the context of, of some sort of broad uh i don't know something like the chartists a a a an agenda not necessarily not and then this is hard because we don't really think of politics as about issues even though that is what we get upset about right they all get filtered through personalities Right, and that I think is is if that continues to be the case, I don't see anything changing really because, yeah. as we saw during this last election, I mean the people who are supposed to be on the left as electoral the electoral option for people are are not going to do it. They're not going to inspire people. They're they're not going to make them uh, shed their at this point hardened cynicism and and lack of uh, faith in these institutions. Because they're part of these sort of moribund political parties that no one really has any trust for anymore. And uh, so, like, the closest thing to an answer I can think of, and it's obviously very, you know, rudimentary, is, and it needs to get worked on by people smarter than me, is that uh, it need, there needs to be sort of a, a easy-to-understand bullet-point policy sort of has to be a litmus test for all candidates right. that you would support and which has to be first that has to go in he- ahead of of personality right. that like it, it that has to be sort of leading that has to be the horse leading the wagon not the other way around not the other way around except so right ex- except we're not going to reinvent the wheel right in yeah. the wagons and yeah. for all of i mean for recent history personalities and individuals and leaders have galvanized people and led movements Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that the important things aren't done by the movement and people behind the scenes but it seems like we're not going to be able to (laughs) deprogram people from 
looking towards a figure. Yeah. So then the question is, of course, who is the figure? Um, yeah. And of course, I always let, go towards St. Bernard. Mm-hmm. But if we came up with the litmus test, what does that litmus test look like? And is it a litmus test that anyone could pass right now? Any politicians? Uh, I mean, I think it could. Uh, the, the, the task of sort of formulating that is going to be uh, up to the people. I mean, it basically comes down to what what draws the response. Like, what, what do people turn towards? What, what do, you know, the, uh, what, what sort of makes people turn their head and, 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 uh, and, and reckon with something mm-hmm. and, and maybe, you know, stop sort of their, stop what they're doing basically and, and, and take a look. Something they can, you know, get them, listen, get them to keep listening to a canvas or a phone call or right. something like that. Uh, and obviously, I think healthcare is a big part of right. it. Healthcare is huge, uh, and I think that the movement on that is very good. And I think it should be the leading edge of anything because I think you got to start a conversation, and that's a good way to start it with many, many people because it's a travesty, and everyone knows someone right. or has personally been injured or or, or you know traumatized <laughs> by interactions yeah, yeah. with the healthcare system. Although there's a very good propaganda machine that claims that. People come from Canada and Europe, and there are all these lines, yeah. and you know that I'm always amazed by how strong that is. So that's another thing that we have to. Yeah, well, that's the thing is the pushback's going to be huge. Yeah. Uh, there's no, and it has only really just begun right. because you know you don't really have, you barely have model legislation, and you don't have control of it. I mean, until recently, you haven't even had control of a of a, of a legislature to maybe even symbolically pass right. something. Uh, and and have it like put out there, uh, but I mean we saw during the the midterms that that healthcare passed basically everywhere it was on the ballot and and if it's that's the kind of an example of the idea stripped of its relationship to a political party or to a candidate is incredibly popular. Right. It's once you have to have that coming out of the mouth of somebody who has a D next to their name. What uh, about an I? Uh, I mean that's better certainly. Uh, I honestly, I mean. Like that's the funniest thing about people who get mad about Bernie not being yeah. a Democrat. And they don't realize that that is his single best. <laughs> right, I know. You're because, like, I already. I'm like, I already love him. You don't have to tell him on me. Yeah, exactly. Anymore. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. The 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 Democratic Party is just an absolutely dis- garbage brand. Right. It 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 is a hindrance. Uh, being a member of it, it it, it basically. Sh- I mean, forgetting about the the psychos who who hate. The Democrats, because they actually think they're communists, right. they're just regular people who don't necessarily engage in politics. They don't see them as a champion for anything other than their own interests, and for good reason. Right. So, uh, so, so yeah, that, I think, but I think that just showed that the healthcare is a, is, is is an important uh, like leading issue, and and it kind of can it shows how it it can energize maybe you know and energize people, engage people who might otherwise not be interested in the partisan aspect of it because right. of their sort of alienation from that entire yeah. charade. So what are your takeaways from the midterm and then your uh, predictions for uh, 2020? Uh, well, it was a crazy mixed bag. I mean, it's, that's the thing. Like there was, there's really no clear, I didn't really draw a clear inference from anything. I mean, there was good results. There were bad results. There were, uh, there were, there's really a data point for anything you want to, any argument you want to make. Right. That, you know, because there were plenty of people running in red districts on healthcare who lost, right. which, you know, is, uh, could be used as an example. But then there were people who ran on red districts on healthcare and won. Right. Uh, so, I mean, uh, the specific terrain of the, of the districts probably has more to do with that than any kind of broader argument you want to make. Uh, I say that. You're going to get two years of, of probable deadlock, which is certainly preferable than what we've had so far. Right. Uh, and then uh, in 2020, oh, man, I don't know. I certainly hope. I, I do think Bernie is really the only choice for the Democrats. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I just feel keep, like. Just keep him alive. Yeah. I want to yeah. see images of Bernie doing planks. Yeah, <laughs> they, like, they need to have him like in. Yeah. They need to just keep him in that chamber from. Starship Troopers for the next uh, four two years, uh, and then wheel him around in it for the campaign. Um, he's so fit. Oh come he on, is, he is very. He's certainly he's fitter than I am. There's no question about it. P ninety X Bernie. Yeah, 
so yeah, I mean, I I'd like to see him, and and the crowded field I think works to his advantage. Right. Uh, but you know, it's all a question of how quickly it's whittled down, and if, if there's like an establishment stop Bernie right. consensus candidate early enough in the process, that right. they might be able to. If stop there's him. another viable candidate to lose to to Trump. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well, that's the thing. And that's the thing. If Trump. the economy, I mean, we've seen that this before. Uh, you know, this was a big swing in the house, but it's really it's it's not that off of uh par for what you see in a midterm. Um, and it was probably a lot of the bleeding was. A lot more bleeding was probably staunched by the continue overheated, you know, economy, which is going to pop. Right. And it really just comes down to whether or not it happens before 2020. Um, if, if there's some sort of slump or recession before 2020, I think anybody could probably Trump. Mm. But uh, if the economy just keeps, keeps, keeps going, uh, then I think he might actually win. And then he gets to preside over uh, Hooverville's for the next four years after that and we can have another we can we do the we can redo the hoover term all over again with trumpvilles and the bonus army it'll be great what do you think of um what happened in brazil well i i talked about this on our show uh as, as sort of to show how how brazil is an example of actual what we would the closest thing we have now to a fascist uh takeover uh Using the electoral system, uh, a mass a mass street based, uh, violent movement that uh, has the tacit and and in many cases explicit endorsement of the traditional elite who want who basically wanted to end the left, right. who were sick of the workers' party, uh, used administrative uh, coup to remove Rousseff, mm-hmm. uh, used. Uh, uh, the courts to prevent Lula from running, who would have won? Yeah, and Lula won. but. Uh, were unable to win themselves. I mean, the Temer, the, the, yeah. the establishment uh, replacement for Rousseff at like two percent approval rating. There was no real popular support for any of the remaining right wing parties. So a new force had to come in to fill that void, and that was Bolsonaro. And then he he used those tactics to win. And that is that is the con- contrast to the United States, where where where. Where you did have a, a, a legitimate alliance between a mass fascist violent street movement and the traditional elites who won at the ballot box, thanks in large part to uh, the helpful uh, machinations of, of the bureaucracy, uh, and and that really is the contrast with the U.S. because we don't have something like that happening here yet. But that but that is sort of the future we can look forward to in in a era of more mass politics and more uh, social and economic crisis and shout out of course to the uh um, wall street journal for endorsing bolsonaro of course amazing yeah the safest the he's safest not, choice he's not pc but he'll get things done yeah i that actually surprised me i mean it was kind of a reminder of how much more overtly um because the wall street journal will never endorse trump right and it it's just so much easier for them to be reactionary and embrace totally despicable policies abroad than it is here well yeah publicly. because nobody really knows anything about those countries so they're not going to be horrified by it yeah i just thought maybe that yeah i was i was i was surprised everyone else was like why are you surprised it's to be expected but it was a uh, taking off the mask but you're right if, if no one knows what's behind the mask it doesn't really matter yeah so you do you think that a, like a bolsonaro type character would be the future uh here if there was a an economic crisis after trump I mean, we're seeing that the you see the the trajectory. <laughs> I mean, from from Palin, you know, from sort of the ersatz nationalism uh, of the Bush era to Sarah Palin running in twenty oh eight, and then Trump. I mean, it's a pretty the 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 anti intellectualism gets cranked up. The the part anti intellectualism, the yeah, anti intellectualism, yeah, gets cranked up. Uh, sort of the appeal to violence gets cranked up the fetishization of of force uh the the rallies get more uh more body and and wild right uh and yeah i mean it's it's it if you want to just keep going it it does seem like that's an inevitable uh, inevitable result we've got like uh we've got the rise above type 
white nationalists, street fighters, mm-hmm. which are they seem small at this point. And then there's the Proud Boys. Yes, but uh, who's going to be the Fry Corps? Because they don't seem like no. Uh, I'd say that the of the groups. I mean, unless it's somebody new, and it would probably be somebody new. Yeah, uh, but the groups, the group that seems like it would be the core of that, if it were to happen among existing groups and like i said it would probably be a new group that we haven't even imagined yet uh i would say the three percenters uh because those guys and the oath keepers those guys are military men these guys are the veterans these yeah. guys are sort of that thing that the, yeah. those the, the fry corps the, the 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 guys who have been traumatized by their encounter with colonial violence and now are coming home and sort of can't really adjust anymore uh, I, so yeah, I'd say like that is the model for whoever it would end up being. So on the other end, uh, anyone who's a progressive uh, pouring um, resources and money into uh, veteran VA hospitals mm-hmm. and veteran care and reintegration into society, that, that would be positive to staunch any uh, more fascist tendencies. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's like the real, one of the dark ironies of, of contemporary conservatism is their fetishization of the troops as an abstract and then their absolute willingness to sort of leave them to the wolves when they get home and right then, uh you know i Chickens mean the, the guy who did the shooting in california was a like five-year veteran of the marines diagnosed with ptsd right. uh I, and that's that is yeah that's like the colonial chickens honestly coming home to roost right. in a way that is a hallmark of fashion but how much do people think that that's i mean it's probably not conscious but i wonder if the the people who are who fetishize the the military whether they care about these occasional um you know examples of of gun violence massacres what have you uh do they just think that's like a worthy cost of the military projects oh yeah right they don't really i mean it's 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 like the chickens coming home to roost but they don't even see it that way no i they, i honestly i mean that's the thing. Unless is one of their kids is, if anything, it helps them, and that's oh, that's yeah, been true. Yeah, of, that's right. true of terrorism too. Like the the the, the, mili- the military state never really cared if there was terror attacks. Those are good. They right. Encourage, uh, you know, they they give people more commitment to right. maintaining the military posture. Yeah, great uh, for Israel. Yeah, it's it's a absolutely true. it's a it's a it's a it's a negative feedback loop that just to them is is totally welcome. Right. So. Two other questions, uh, two other areas I'd love to talk about with you. One is the idea of like, you know, there is this parallel of it's not a horseshoe as in they're comparable in terms of the right and the left, like socialism and fascism. But but it does. They do compete for similar similar populations sometimes. And. You have often been accused of being like of courting alt right people. (laughs) Uh, To me, it seems like there's a really good thing in offering potential, like in offering disaffected would-be alt-right people another outlet. But then people are like, you shouldn't be catering to these people at all. It's kind of suggesting that in order to get them, you have to be offering something um, alt-right-ish. Yeah, and I don't think we are at all. The only thing that we're offering, I think, that you that some people would call alt-right-ish uh, is that we sort of aren't, censored we don't censor ourselves we are Irreverent. i hate the phrase un pc right. but like we we are willing to sort of ride the edge on, on right. comedy uh and that is a thing that separates us from other sort of media things and also does appeal to because it's demographically it, it's the same guys it's it's right. young right. underemployed white guys right. i mean that's that's who listens to us that's who ends up becoming all right uh and 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 there is an element to which you know, especially the degree to which they're online, which is extremely, right. uh, that they feel alienated by right. a culture that talks about scolding them yeah. for being white and, yeah, and not telling them they privilege. can't say things and yeah. stuff like that. And and so, since there's so little material basis to American politics, and right. all that they recognize is sort of the rhetoric, they got one side of them saying, "Yeah, we're, we can say whatever we want, hell yeah." And then another side <laughs> saying, no, you can't do anything. Right. And I'm like, well, all right, what are you offering me other than the chance to feel bad about myself? Right. Yeah. Uh, and so. You don't want the toxic masculinity pill? Right. Exactly. <laughs> and so 
I think that I mean we have never tried to cater to anybody. Right. I mean we right. literally we have no, we've never had a plan. Trust right. me, uh, we just <laughs> kind of talk about what we're thinking about. Yeah, uh, and I think that what we've done is we've created a space where people can kind of have that right that jocularity, but then also at every point we we hammer out the fact that what what's alienating you and what's making your life a sort of a barren desert of sort of uh, either. Uh, you know, lack of purpose or precarity or both is capitalism. Jews. Not the Jews. Not Muslims, not Mexicans. Not the Muslims. Uh, not, not, black the, people, not, not, not the people, gays. Not the, not the people with less, the least amount right. of power in the society, right. the people with the most. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not, I actually find the argument so facile and so stupid that if you are peeling people away from, from a potentially, from, from, the alt-right, you're somehow doing something alt-right. Seems like a no-brainer that, I'm not saying this to blow smoke up your ass. I think this applies to any any movement, any party, any candidate, any pop culture phenomenon that it, that is providing people with something that they get from the alt-right without the alt-right part. Like, it's the Bernie Trump thing, right? Yeah. It's tapping into the same group of people right. and saying, no, don't blame these people. It, you're fucked, and I feel that you're fucked, and I get it. Yeah, but go this way, not that way. Yeah. I, well, I think a lot of for a lot of people online uh, on the left, like they feel like they sort of have a, a monopoly mm, on virtue, yeah, right? And like the idea that somebody who you know has aesthetic preferences that they don't like could also be on their side is offensive to them. <laughs> right. They don't like that. It's like no, I have this perfectly curated. Uh, personality in this perfectly curated Netflix queue, and right. I like all the right music. And it's right. like it's not fair for some for some fucking cargo <laughs> short bro right. to be on my side. You can like uh, Cannibal Corpse and Trotsky, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of like what a it's not a bad problem to have, you know, yeah. to feel like there are too many people, right? Like, well, that's cramping the thing. your and, style. And, and people have God said forbid. this is that like the left because of its lack of popular. Uh, impact and, and success has become just a subculture it's a subculture it's 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 a it's sort of an identity right and if it's an identity then you know you want to it's like being a goth in high school right. you know you don't want posers right right right, right. Uh, yeah and that's not a way to ever that's a recipe Build. for irrelevance for right. eternity yeah if, if, yeah. if it's if that's the, the the metric you know you're never gonna do it because the politics is about getting more people right 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 you can like uh you can like unions and not like folk rock yeah yeah (laughs) you don't have to think nanette was great right yeah right (laughs) although that that probably is a litmus test for some people oh definitely Um, yeah yeah it's a one-woman show yeah it's not yeah what did you call it slam poetry spoken word um close uh yeah i don't really get that It, it, it just seems so illogical that argument also the argument that like class organizing can't work because people are racist i'm sure you've encountered oh, that oh god yeah Can well you- that's i mean the re- what i wish people who push that would really accept i really wish they would accept if you believe that to be the case then you can never win right because you're not going to have enough people right if, Amer- if every Amer- if every white person in america is racist except for the ones who've gone through the proper you know privilege checking detox program re- retreats yeah uh yeah you oh. bought the safety pin box yeah or exactly yeah <laughs> You're never going to win anything. Right. Because you don't have enough people. Right. So you're just complaining. You're just posting. Yeah. And it's like, that's fine, but you need to accept that. You need to like be like the Afro-pessimist thing, right? Where you just say, there's no hope for any of this. I'm just going to post. Pretending like you should be like claiming a mantle of like a gatekeeper for a political project. When you are at base, uh, fundamentally as black pilled, <laughs> right. as like a, as like Elliot Rogers, that's absurd. Yeah, you are embracing a politics of in, of inevitable and oh, complete yeah, right. defeat. Yeah, and it's purity politics. <laughs> that's the irony, right? Oh yeah. Like they always accuse us of purity politics. Like you're literally saying that what you are pr- uh, promoting is abandoning any viable victory. Yes. Any potential victory. And that's more important than the lives of the people who you claim to care about. Absolutely. Right? Like, that's what kills me. It's like, if you care about racism, sexism, homophobia, I won't say classism because they don't pretend to. But if you care about these marginalized people and disenfranchised people, you think the best way to defeat, to, to, to empower them or protect them is by making sure that people like Trump stay in office? Yeah. Because that's the inevitable byproduct yeah. of all of this. And you can't, when you ask people, like, so that there's that argument, and that goes hand in hand with the argument that class policies throw 
marginalized people under the bus. And when you ask people what they're talking about, they don't ever have a response. No. Because they don't. Yeah. Like everything that's good for the white working class is good for everything that we're proposing or the left is proposing that's good for the white working class is good for the working class of all genders and colors. And disproportionately. And exactly. It's not just better. good for them. It's disproportionately. It's better. Exactly. It's disproportionately right. better for, exactly. for all, all struggling. So these are the and big racists women. and sexists. Yeah. yeah. Aren't they? It's, At least in the result I mean, they are. Like it, they, they may have a, a cool view on things, but they're the ones who are literally, if we follow their political advice, we would, we are like condemning people to what to yeah no to continued rule by this yeah. psychotic right and i think you know to give them sort of to, to to give them a little bit of credit i honestly think that they don't even think in those terms like i was talking about i'm talking about how like that's how deeply ingrained irrelevance is on the left right that yeah. when you yeah, say it's true. Well, you know what of course you're not gonna what be. about doing this right. what about like pr- they don't think anything's gonna right. happen so it's like it's a that's not point. persuasive right. to them because what you think your thing's gonna happen? Nothing right. is gonna happen. Right. <laughs> Although why not? If if nothing's gonna happen, like why not actually try to work on things that help people disproportionately? Uh, I mean, part of it is you lose your gatekeeper status, right. which is you know a big big yeah. thing. Like you you have a, you have a position within sort of a hierarchy of 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 people online who sort of defer to you on these issues. Right. And if you get a broader group. And 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 uh, the issues that people are emphasizing aren't your specialty. Your specific influence gets diluted, and like that is much more of a real threat than the promise of some thing happening that you probably don't even think is even possible. So right. much better to protect your specific gatekeeper position. Yeah, we had Leslie Leon, and he made this point, you know, about how this paper had come out saying that Trump voters were all animated by uh, racist. Uh, racism or racial animus yeah and that that was somehow new or something and he said he's like we and you all the people posting about this have always been saying that white people are racist why is this a surprise and and obama and he says it's still no excuse to losing for losing to trump obama was able to win over some of these people yeah. and he goes hillary clinton as a racist herself should have had an easier time and get this, Hillary voters were racist too. Oh right, exactly. That was the other racist, point he made. Exactly, of racist voted for Hillary Clinton. What was right. it? The Pumas. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, because I mean, you have guys who voted for Obama and then they voted for Trump, and y- y- they right. get mad at you if you say, "Well, they couldn't have been that racist because they voted for Obama." But a lot of those people also voted for Hillary, and they uh, like they've done polling on 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 racial views of the people who voted. And there's a good solid chunk of Clinton voters white clinton voters right. who had every horrible retrograde view uh and still voted for so that's not the, the idea that they've created this like clear right. uh, uh indicator based on whether or not you voted for this profoundly uncharismatic insanely corrupt uh, wife of a rapist is uh, right. pretty not very persuasive <laughs> right oh yeah we should talk about Juanita Broderick. that's a whole other thing um that's actually another interesting thing the Juanita Broderick thing just quickly like I think that's an example of the left. I see these things as, as kind of related. Like when we alienate people and crap on them, we're losing them. And Juanita Broderick, it's not like, she's a, a very specific example. She was raped by Bill Clinton. But liberal feminists did not pay attention to her. Donald Trump swoops in, offers her a chance to tell her story. Like, I'm not saying I blame or don't blame the person. It's very logical to me, though. If you've been ignored or called a liar or called crazy for decades, then someone gives you a chance to tell your story. Yeah. You do it. And that to me is like almost a metaphor for what happens. Like if we don't fight for certain people, it creates a vacuum and then people go elsewhere. Yeah. But the, th- the thought is, is that, and this goes like, and it comes from every element of the way they talk about everything is that, 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 you are, that your allegiance is owed without right. any sort of promise of support or offer of anything. Like you are supposed to support them because that's what makes you a good person. Right. Oh and yeah. If you don't, then you're bad. Like that's why after every vote, they fix yeah. every election. Whenever they lose, they fixate on the people who voted for third parties right. because they want to yell at these people who probably never would have voted anyway. For a Democrat right. Anyway. Like there, are, people are. It's amazing. In in Arizona, the Green Party candidate pulled out. Right. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. She saw how close it was. Who's also a black woman, which is yes. inconvenient for the narrative. By the pulled way, pulled out but. of the race. Uh, and it's still a, a number of people voted for her, and in a close contest, it might have been you know enough. But if you're voting for the Green Party candidate, 
after she's <laughs> right. pulled out yeah, of the race. You're probably not that. You're not yeah. gettable. Right. Right. Exactly. And they don't yeah. think of, they don't realize they never, that. Yeah. They assume that these people are owed them just as they're assumed all women are right. owed them, all minorities right. are owed them. The firewall. Nobody yeah. has to, they don't have to get Compete, anything back. Right. They, yeah. You can shit on them all the time. Right. And they're still supposed to support you because it makes them good people. I also wonder how many people are potentially lost that way ahead of time because people always prep shit on people, right? So even before the election, people will start blaming third party people. People start blaming the Greens. I wonder how much that actually alienates people who would be gettable. I mean, it, it's part of a broader just right. imperiousness. Yes. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, and well, if they just, as, as the party itself, I've, I mean, I've heard other people say this. I said it on a show. It's like, if Coke starts losing to Pepsi, they don't go, why aren't you drinking more Coke, you fucking assholes? Yeah, they yeah, say, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, what are we doing that they're not right. drinking our beverage yeah. anymore? That's so funny. And the, focus and, and the thing is, the reason for that is because that's what you have control over, is what you are offering as a party. Right. You don't have control over right. individual action. Right, right, right. You think you can yell at them, but that's just you getting like a libidinal thrill from yeah, scolding exactly. somebody. Yeah. Right. You're not actually going to change Which their probably opinion makes by them double down. Them. We yeah. know for a fact that doesn't work. Right. It just makes you feel better. You have no control over the actions of a, right. of a handful of third-party voters. You have control over what you offer. Right. And maybe that gets them. Maybe it doesn't. These people are probably not gettable, but maybe it gets somebody else. Yeah. Maybe it gets people who don't vote. And that's the, that's the reality is this right. giant chunk of totally disengaged Americans who have decided that politics doesn't mean anything to them. And seeing what the party that's supposed to be the party of working people fail to offer them any meaningful redress and then blame other the voters for their failures is not going to make them change their mind. Yeah. Amen. This was great, though. No, this is a lot yeah. of fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So where can people find you? What's next for you? What's, uh, yeah, now that you've, you've written a book. Yes. Uh, we got the Chapel Guide to Revolution. Yeah. Uh, we're still keep on keeping on rock and rolling, baby. Yeah. Uh, What's we're next? The keep- rock and roll tour? Well, we're doing, we're doing the, uh, we're not, we, we've done, we just got back from touring, right. so we're going to take a few months off. We're hoping to tour, though, next year. Uh, we have ambitious plans to tour the UK. Ooh, nice. Uh, and the South, which we haven't Ooh. gotten to yet. Uh, and then also... To Gettysburg the, concert. Yeah. I mean, Shiloh, is, I've never been to Shiloh. I'd like to check that out. Um, and we, um, we did our election stream, which was a big success. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to do, hopefully, try to do more stuff on the Twitch stream, like, you know, panel stuff and, and, and program, like visual pro- video program. Right. Put stuff on more, more YouTube stuff. So just trying to get cross platform uh, shenanigans. Nice. That's, so that's the, that's the near future. Yeah. You got to help us out with Twitch. Yeah, man. we, we want to do it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea how to do right. it. It's all our producer, Chris. God bless him. And uh, yeah, sh- remember, just take a stroll down memory lane. I remember that first night, that fateful night. Yes, that's true. When we did live taping with, with you guys. Our first appearance uh, on camera anywhere. Yeah. And the first time I met Felix. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. So you guys were extremely online yeah. friends. Yeah, we were just online that. friends. I'd never met him before that trip. I'm a matchmaker. Absolutely. What can I say? Um, and I remember, I think you said, I don't. I, it was very cute. I don't remember if you said it um, online or to me or whatever. You were like, this is the and I'm sure it's been surpassed. You're like, this is the best night of my life. <laughs> uh, you know what? I mean, I've, we've had some great, great experiences ever since then. But like the feeling, that first feeling of going into that room and having it full of people yeah. after we were just like talking into the void right. for like four months, uh, that has yet to be surpassed. Honestly, that was amazing. So thank you for, guys for giving us. Oh, that. my gosh. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for, for coming. No, it was, it was, uh, it was our pleasure. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. So happy we could give you that Katie Helper Show bump from uh, obscurity <laughs> to fame. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Come back on. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. Don't forget to check out our bonus with Matt Chrisman. Matt Chrisman. Go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Yep. And find us on all the social media platforms. All the social media platforms. Facebook. We got the Katie Helper Show Facebook. You got to use the KT Help Show hashtag all over. So that's K-T-H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. You could tag, tag the streets with it. Why not? Um, Gabe, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me every week at Pete's Candy Store on Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. doing stand-up with my co-host Samir Nassim. You can also find me on Twitter at Gabe underscore Pacheco or check out a movie review podcast, Eat, Pray, Judge. And uh, you can check me out on Twitter. That's KT Helps, letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. 
Uh, you can also find me on Instagram with the same name. You have a different name on Instagram, right? It's Gabe Pack One. Gabe Pack One. You can find the Katie Halper Show on iTunes, SoundCloud. You can rate, oh, rate and, and review, rate, review us. Rate and, and subscribe. subscribe. Yeah. Tell yeah. your friends and family. Thanks, guys. Bye. <laughs>